trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. A recent ABA study found that 36% of attorneys are problem drinkers, and the profession recognizes that many attorney misconduct findings stem from alcohol addiction. But what a fair amount of people don't realize is that lawyers' assistance programs can help, in confidence, in many states. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking about those offerings of Bree Buchanan. She directs the State Bar of Texas's Lawyers Assistance Program, and she's chair of the ABA's Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs. Welcome to the show, Bree. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Now, I mentioned the report your commission recently released about there's a stigma about attorneys getting help, but I think that sometimes, unfortunately, that stigma of getting help is true for both attorneys and maybe their employers, where admitting that you need help, it's seen as a sign of weakness or people are afraid it's going to be seen as a sign of a weakness. Sure, sure. How can the profession get past that? And are they already? Is it getting better, do you think? Well, it's not getting better yet, Mm. but we hope that it will. Those studies showed that lawyers have a tremendous reluctance to engage in what we consider call help-seeking behavior, and that's calling anybody. It doesn't have to be the lawyer's assistance program, which we go by LAPS, and I may talk about that a little, you know, refer to them as LAPS. Sure. But um, whether they call their state's lawyer's assistance program or LAP, or whether they call a private therapist, et cetera, lawyers, their most valuable asset is their reputation. And if they feel like something might possibly tarnish their reputation, they're not going to do anything to endanger that. So lawyers with major depression or substance use disorders will go underground and are really good at hiding these things, and they can hide it and not reach out for help until the diseases, these disorders, have progressed terribly. And all of that really gets back to the issue of stigma. You know, we still, these are diseases. They've been classified. Alcoholism has been classified as a disease by the AMA since the 1950s. But there's still, in this day and age, a lot of stigma, which means shame, surrounding depression, anxiety disorders, bipolar disorder, alcoholism, you know, substance use disorders, et cetera. And so it drives it underground. And so we ha- we see the lawyers themselves, you know, we would like for them to reach out and ask for help for themselves if they're having problems. That doesn't occur at a very high rate. The other thing we would like to see is that lawyers or members of a law firm reach out and ask for help for a colleague who may be suffering. But people don't do that because they don't want to embarrass them. They don't want to get them in trouble. They don't want to hurt their reputation or their career. And so they let that other individual languish and suffer for a long period of time. And employers, I can tell you, a big reluctance is when they finally call me to help as the director of the lab here in Texas, inevitably, you know, I think that they would rather um, have dental surgery than have to deal with this because, you know, the thing I hear regularly is I didn't go to law school to deal with this. You're not taught how to address it when one of your senior partners is dealing with advanced alcoholism. 
it's just not part of what you're trained and it's not part of what you feel comfortable doing. So it's hard for everybody. And if you dial it back and you distill it down, what we're really talking about is the stigma and the shame and a fear of even talking about these issues. Well, I think, too, that if attorneys get a sense that a colleague has really has a problem, they might tell themselves, you know, that old attorney line, well, I don't have firsthand knowledge that someone's drinking is interfering with their work. Do you hear that much? What I hear is that I am not an expert on this issue. Mm. I am not qualified to assess or evaluate whether or not my colleague is an alcoholic. And we try to, we being the LAP programs, when we go out and speak about this, we try to dispel that idea that you've got to be able to be an expert to assess somebody's behavioral health. And really what it is about is let's consider a human being to human being. We know and we sense when we're with somebody that we've known for a long time, we can tell if we pay attention if they're struggling, if they're suffering, if something's really different, and if we see that over a period of time. So if there's a marked change in behavior and it occurs over a period of time, and in your gut you're thinking, there's something wrong here, but I don't know what to do, that's when we're asking people to call your state's lawyer's assistance program. And what you're doing is you can call, You can call anyone in the country. You don't have to give them your name or that other lawyer's name if you don't want to. If you simply want to consult with them and talk, this is what I'm noticing. This is what I'm seeing. What do you think? Can you give me some ideas on how I could respond or how we could respond to this? That is a wonderful support role that a lab can play to lawyers in general. Well, and I'm curious, when you get calls from people who are concerned, and it took them a bit to call, do you get many, if any, calls where you talk to the person and you're like, yeah, you know, I don't think this person you're concerned about has a problem. This is probably a false alarm. Does that ever happen? It does happen. And when I get a call, I ask, somebody is calling about another. And so I first ask, what have you observed? You know, just the facts. What have you observed? What have you seen? What have you noticed that's changed? And then I also will ask, well, what have you heard around the office, around the courthouse, anything to that effect? And I try to get that person to talk for a while. And sometimes on occasion, not often, but it definitely happens, that appears that there's probably something else going on. And so we make a note of that. And then if it's a serious problem or something really is going on, we'll get a call most likely from another colleague in the community. Oh, you'll get more than one call for the same person if it's a serious issue. That's common? Yes, it is. Oh, interesting. Now, I have the impression that in many, if not most states, LAP has confidentiality with what it's told about attorneys. Is that correct? And if so, how can you determine what the law is in your state where you're licensed? Sure. There's two ways you can do that. I mean, some One of the simplest ways is simply put in the your state and lawyer's assistance program uh, with a search engine, and you will get the result. And then all of them have a website, varying degrees of sophistication, and click on that. We all know 
that the biggest issue, the biggest barrier that we face in being able to help people is the fear about confidentiality. So every website I've seen posts information about their confidentiality policies prominently on the website. Also, the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs, we just redid our website, and it's wonderful. I encourage people to take a look, and it's got a lot of information. And one of the first buttons, I guess, across the middle of the page is about finding your state's lawyer's assistance program. So you can click through that to find it as well. And just to be sure, because I think, it again, from what I've heard, people sometimes don't understand this. There are many states where whatever you tell someone with LAP, they don't ever tell anyone else unless they have your permission, including attorney discipline groups. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I will say that it is all states. Ah. So every state has a lap of some sort, and sometimes it's a you know, Colorado Lawyers Assistance Program. Sometimes it's a Lawyers Concern for Lawyers Program. Every one of them, though, the communication is confidential in all directions. So if you call about a lawyer that you're concerned about and that program contacts the lawyer of concern, the caller's identity is completely confidential. Any communication that's had with the lawyer of concern is confidential. None of it is reported back. None of it is reported or forwarded to a regulatory or disciplinary office. And that's a common theme of all the LAP programs. Okay. And I would imagine a lot of times if you think that a colleague or a friend or loved one has some sort of mental health problem that's serious, he or she is not going to be really open to listening to you initially. Do you have any advice on that? One thing that the LAPs are really good at is that coaching or consulting piece. Sometimes people will call and they say, I really don't want you to call, but I think that I want to have the conversation with the person because maybe it's a friend of 20 years or so. We can help coach you on how to have what we refer to as, quote unquote, the difficult conversation because it is a difficult conversation. And it goes very, it's formulaic. It's, it's very basic. It starts off in a um, safe and secure space, and you say, you know, Joe, I've known you for 20 years, and I really admire you, or we've been great friends, and I've noticed that there's a change in how you appear in your demeanor or in your attitude. And, you know, last week I saw you come in late every day, and that's just not like you. You've always been the first one in the office for years. And, and you know, I'm just worried about you. I'm worried and is everything okay? And can you talk to me? And then if they don't want to talk on that occasion, because they may be taken aback, say, well, I'm always here for you. If there's anything I can do to support you, come to me and let's talk. And you might want to check back with them in a few days or a week and consider taking them to lunch or out to coffee. And that human connection and that reaching out for help and opening up the opportunity for that person to maybe highly likely with a lawyer for one of the first times express the internal pain that they're experiencing has an amazing healing capacity in and of itself. It's not going to cure it, but it is a step on the path towards recovery from whatever the person is doing. And 
it's so hard to get people to take that first step. And the one-on-one conversations can be a critical part of that process. Do you think, too, if someone works in an office where the drinking culture is celebrated, which I think that's the case in a fair amount of law firms, it's very hard to get other people to realize that, you know, somebody might be doing a little too much and get support for that. Sure, I think it can be hard, and especially when somebody starts to abuse a substance, one thing that starts to come up in their mind is that I'm starting to drink more than the other people around me. And I can tell you this because I'm in recovery myself, Mm -hmm. and I definitely had that experience. I started to notice that I drank faster, I drank more than the other people that were in the room. And then at one point in time, I had somebody make a comment to me, and I panicked. Mm. Oh, my God, people are noticing this. So I changed my drinking behavior so that I would drink before an event or after an event, but not while I was there. And what I have found from my personal experience and from my experience in this job, I don't think that there's any Broadway actor that is better, could be better at covering up a substance use disorder than a lawyer. We are trained to put on a front and a mask, and we excel at this. And so it makes the detection very difficult. I would say if you see somebody in your office regularly who is openly, blatantly, intoxicated regularly, the likely you're seeing the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I hope this isn't too personal, but where you are in recovery, no. do you mind sharing with us what worked for you? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I started off like a lot of people, law school, terrified, scared to death. By the time I was finishing up my first semester, I had a full-blown anxiety disorder uh, and panic disorder which is a horrible, horrible thing. And I found, based on just life experiences and then also looking around law school, what's acceptable to deal with uncomfortable feelings is that it's alcohol. And so I started using that to deal with the anxiety, and it worked. It was really helpful. And then over time, I continued to drink, and Things happen and life happens, and then I was dealing with some depression that I have off and on throughout my life, and it hurts, and I felt really bad. But I found that a routine go-to that worked every time was to drink red wine for me, and up to you know two bottles or more a night would got to the point of that, and it gets to the point where. I had control, and I was using it to deal with my pain, and then at some point, it starts to take over. It starts to actually start changing your brain chemistry when you're exposed to enough of it for a long of it, and if you have a genetic predisposition, you're even more vulnerable, which I do, and you lose your ability to control how much you drink and the way you drink. And then, so that's when the hiding begins. And ultimately, as too often happens, I had to lose just about everything. I lost my marriage. I lost my job. And at that point, 
I knew that I was about to really, truly lose my health. And I had a T-Lab volunteer come and uh, speak to me because somebody had seen what was going on with me and called the Lawyer's Assistance Program. And I was helped into recovery. I got into treatment, uh, went to intensive outpatient program treatment, and then got into a 12-step program, a support group, and have continued that. And I'm really blessed now to have this job and work in recovery and help lawyers all across the country. That is such a great story. I want to thank you so much for sharing it with us. Sure. And also, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about how if lawyers recognize they have a problem and reach out for help, they might be able to save themselves from a big trouble that's come about from their addictions. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, we're talking about how lawyers who need some sort of mental health services shouldn't be afraid of their lawyers' assistance programs, or LAPS, as they're more commonly known, and instead see those programs as a tool to help them find ways to getting better. Joining me is Bree Buchanan, chair of the ABA's Commission on Lawyers' Assistance Programs. So, Bree, in stories I've done over the years about attorney discipline cases, oftentimes when an attorney gets caught doing something really terrible like stealing money for a client, he or she usually has a somewhat long history of um, alcohol addiction, maybe prescription pain kills, maybe gambling, maybe all three. And I've heard from some defense attorneys that if when you recognize you have a problem and you've already done some bad things, if you can prove, you know, when you truly do try to get better, that can help you avoid bigger problems down the road. Would you say that's true? I've seen that to be the case, that it can often be used as mitigation in a grievance proceeding, but that's going to vary from state to state. But sure, I mean, from the perspective of a defense position, and then there's the whole thing about saving your life. <laughs> well, you, you know, I <laughs> would think practice. that if you were, yeah, if you were someone who you'd been taking money from clients and you were drinking to push down your feelings, I, I would think that when you admitted you had a problem and went to rehab and got some good therapy, you might be like, yeah, I did all these terrible things, but I'm getting help to deal with my anxiety. And at least now I'm not waiting to be found out. Right, right. And I can tell you many of the disciplinary bodies do look at that and upon that favorably because if somebody has been disbarred and attempting to be readmitted to the practice or they're basically on probation, that can be one of the conditions of their probation and one of the ways that they can show that they've gone through a rehabilitation process and are ready to be readmitted to the bar on a full basis. I'm curious. It seems to me that once someone is in recovery, it seems like social drinking is a fair amount of the legal profession with work-related events. Do you have advice on how to navigate that? That was an issue for me and I when I first got into recovery. And I hear that from 
lawyers, especially law students who are new in recovery, they're so concerned. The number one thing that is shocking for lawyers and law students is you are the center of your world, but you are not the center of everybody else's world. And so the likelihood that people are actually standing around checking out whether or not you're drinking alcohol is very small. But if you continue to be concerned about that, then get a glass with some ice and, you know, Coke and put a lime on the edge. Or, you know, there's a variety of things you can do. Keep a glass in your hand throughout the night. And and it's and it becomes doable when you first think about, I've got to go to this networking event and I can't drink. It seems absolutely overwhelming. And then after you've done it for a while, it's actually a relief because you are able to perform so much better than a lot of the other people that are there in the circumstances. Well, and I'm curious if that's something too, I mean, obviously recovery is really hard work, but once you get to a point where your head is more clear, you know, you don't have that anxiety about being found out because you've owned it and are trying to get better. But is there also a piece of it that you just feel so much better? I mean, you might still have anxiety and depression, but maybe you have better tools to deal with it now than you once did. So your body, both mentally and physically, just, I think, would be in a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. The ironic things is, for instance, with me, I drank to deal with a lot of anxiety and depression And alcohol makes both of those things worse. So when I was able to peel back the alcohol, then I was able to start looking at the underlying issues, which were the ones that had been with me for so long and could deal with those directly. If you're having one of those issues, and for instance, you decide to go to the route of seeing a psychiatrist or a doctor for any medication, The medication is not going to work effectively if you're pouring on top of it copious amounts of alcohol. So you've got to deal with those issues first, and then you can get down to some of the real core issues as well. Do you have advice, speaking as someone with anxiety, do you have advice about how one can deal with anxiety without either a pharmaceutical or alcohol? Because I know for some people long-term prescription anxiety meds don't work out very well. That's right. They are actually highly addictive. Very addictive. And very hard to get off from them. They're actually quite physically dangerous to come off of. Absolutely. Well, of the top three things that has helped me in my recovery has been meditation and learning how to do that. And we hear about that more and more now. But it is really a profoundly effective tool for learning what's going on with your mind, what's going on with your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions, and being able to simply acknowledge them and accept them and move on and not having to self-medicate, which is what so much of the abusive, you know, alcohol abuse and drug abuse, it can be about. So I started meditating right at the time when I first got into recovery, and that's a practice that I've continued to have, and now I actually here at the state bar with our Lawyers Assistance Program employees, we meditate every afternoon for 20 minutes, but it's something that you can do that costs no money, 
There are all kinds of apps on the phone. You don't need any special equipment. You don't need to take any special classes or spend any money or get in any special positions or sit on the floor or anything Mm -hmm. to be able to do this process or this practice of noticing your thoughts and being still with your own mind. And that sounds wonderful how you do it every day at the State Bar. Do you mind telling me how that came to be? We had here in the, within the lap, we would talk about meditation. We'd hear that this was a great thing to do to deal with some of these issues. And I meditated on my own at home, but the other folks had. And one day, uh, one of my staff who had just read every book and audio tape there was on meditation, I said, have you sat to meditate yet? And he said, no. I said, well, okay. Let's go do it right now. <laughs> and we just went down to an empty conference room and got everybody in there and lowered the lights and set a timer and did it for 20 minutes. And we've been doing that now for almost three years. And it's become like clockwork. We get up at three, go down, sit 20 minutes, get up, come back. You know, no muss, no fuss, not a big deal. And we, you know, we've got a few other people in the building that are starting to join us. But that's just a way to make sure we've got a 20-minute break where we can just tune into ourselves and let go of the email and the computer and the phone ringing and, you know, all of the other things that keep us pinging and ponging around inside our mind all day long. What are some other things that employers can do to help with this issue we've spoken about, about the stigma of asking for help? in the profession? Well, there's a, out of those studies that you referenced at the very beginning, there is a national task force on lawyer well-being that's been formed. Also, as a piece of coming out of that, President Hillary Bass has put together a work group on lawyer well-being. And that entity in particular is looking at what employers and law firms can do And number one is taking responsibility for the well-being of the lawyers within the firm, creating, institutionalizing some mechanism for addressing this. So maybe you create a well-being committee or a well-being czar uh, within, within the law firm to look at what's going on within. And that can be an assessment of the lawyer's well-being And it could also include developing policies on how to, for example, assist a lawyer who may become impaired due to major depression or substance use problem. Also, looking within those policies, what are the the systems, the procedures, the processes we're going to set up within our law firm to promote well-being? Whatever that may be, however that may work. It's imperative that the highest level of the law firm model commitment to well-being, that taking a vacation is encouraged, (laughs) not, um, you know, looked down upon. So just all of these, there's many small pieces that can be put together to start slowly changing the culture of the profession overall. All right. And that's everything we have time for today. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Bree, and sharing your story with us. That was wonderful. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, 
please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.